Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, let me read verses 12 through 24. Actually, 13 through 24. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus with the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul writes about love three times in this passage. And he says in verse 14, which is the key part of the verse, let everything you do or let all be done with love. And then he talks about how if you don't love Jesus, you should be a, you'll be accursed. That's pretty strong. It means... Uh, Maranatha, you're going to be uh, judged by God. It's the most serious curse you could put on someone. And then he says about his own love, that Paul loves them all and wants them to know that. So love is a big thing. Now, here's the reason why. Stay with me. Corinth was known, the church at Corinth was known for a lot of things. Um, but one of those things was not love. They are not known for how loving they were to Paul or to others. Um, in fact, what they were known for was the wrong kind of love done in the wrong kind of way. That's really what they were known for. Paul wrote this church because they had so many problems. Um, they had a disordered love, and therefore they were filled with disordered lives. He, the two of his longest epistles uh, were First and Second Corinthians. And he talks about love in these passages many, many times. And uh, it's accurate to say, I, I think I wrote down, Corinthians were filled with disorder because of the love they had or the lack of love in their lives. And I just wrote down 10 of them. And I'm just going to say, them. if you just finger through the book of 1 Corinthians, if you have headings in your Bible, you're going to see all the ways that their disordered love expressed itself and demonstrated itself in their congregation. They had division over leaders. Um, someone said they wanted, they thought Paul was the greatest. And somebody said, no, Apollos is the greatest because he's such a fantastic speaker. And then, no, Peter is the greatest. And then someone said, well, oh, yeah, let me trump you. Jesus is the greatest. And so they had these divisions over the leadership in their church. And they had se uh, segments of people or factions of people that followed each one. They tolerated immorality, incestual, sexual immorality in their church. Um, they sued each other, taking other Christians to court in the church. 
They had marriage issues about marrying people that were related to you. They had divorce issues of all kinds in their, fa- in their church. They had idolatry issues and weaker brother issues about meat offered to idols. And they were eating it in front of people that couldn't handle that sort of thing. And so they really weren't concerned about what other Christians were thinking or doing. They had gender role problems. He had to tell them that this is what a woman is like and this is what a man does even to the point of what they wore and how they dress as far as their clothes were concerned. He talks to them about spiritual gifts. He opens the letter saying they had every spiritual gift there was to have. But yet they are one of the most selfish churches in how they use them. Um, he talks about the abuse of the Lord's Supper. When they went to the Lord's Supper, it wasn't like ours. We do ours more formally. Theirs was much more informally. They had a meal. People would come to church. They would have a lot of food. They would have the Lord's table together. But the rich people were coming, bringing a lot of the food. The poor people would come a little later. And the rich people would eat without them, eat all the good food, leave the scraps. If, if there is anything left for all the poor people and really didn't care about them. So there was a social status problem in the way that they handled their relationships. They were doctrinally had problems. They were confused about the resurrection. They were misplaced in their understanding of eschatology. And literally on and on. So you, that's just 1 Corinthians. So you go through there and they, their disordered love created problems in their unity, their morality, their worship, their doctrine, their relationships, and just about every area of their lives. Um, 1 Corinthians, isn't it kind of ironic, is the book of the Bible that's known for the love chapter. Isn't that strange? I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 is in this book. Now, let me give, if you don't know this, it's not in the book because they were so good at it. It's because they were horrible at it. And Paul said, I got to even tell you what real love is and how it works out in relationships. Now, we use 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, in, in many, many weddings. Maybe you had it in yours. People read it often, but really, they would have heard it in such a different way. We hear it and say, oh, isn't that beautiful? They would have go, oh, that's not me at all. Because they were not a church that had a well-ordered love whatsoever. And so Paul had to write them and give them some lessons on love. And in some ways, that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. Um, so, with all that in mind about how unloving and disordered their love was, you come to the very end of the book, and why I chose this passage and why I read it to you and why we're going to work through it is because Paul wants to end on the note that he's, and the bell he's been ringing the whole book long. And that is what? That what marks and what ought to mark a church more than anything else is the right kind of love done in the right kind of way. Um, but here's what we have to understand and what Paul does at the very beginning of this text. He wants you to understand that in a church, even though Corinth may have been an extreme example, it's never easy to love the way that Jesus wants you to love. Why? Because in the church at Corinth, there were social differences. There were people who had a lot, and there were people socially who didn't have much at all. There were people who were Jewish, and there were people who were Gentile. That means there were different languages, there were different races, there are different social strata here. There were spiritual differences. People, some of them were more mature than others. They had sin problems, marriage problems, family problems. Um, a lot of people became worldly in their church, and there were factions because of it. Um, and on and on it goes. So there were a lot of things in a church at Corinth, which was very metropolitan, very big in the world. It would be almost like a New York City-type situation for today. 
and you had all these things going on. And Paul wants you to know that it's not so easy just to stand up and say, hey, guys, love each other the right way. Love God the right way. And then that's all there is to it. It's a lot more complicated in some ways than that. So let me tell you how it frames it, how it works out here. 1 Corinthians is a book that begins and ends with the same little phrase. It's like the big framework for the whole thing. And in chapter 1 and verse 2, you don't have to turn there, but it says, to the church of God, and here's the key, that is in Corinth. Now, I want to just adapt it a little bit, okay? Maybe we're going to say in New Jersey or in the Trenton surrounding area or however you want to say it. But here's the crux. The church of God that's in Corinth, and the next phrase is this, to those sanctified, next prepositional phrase, in Christ. Now here is the tension. How do you love God and love others when you live in Corinth, but you're supposed to love in Christ? That's the hard part. You live in Corinth, and Corinth had its own definition of love, much like the day in which we live. They thought love was all about sexuality, about power, money, getting your way, making you the center of everything, your own purposes, agenda, getting ahead, doing what you had to do, stomp on people to go up higher in life. That's what it was. Class structure, separation, slaves and rich people don't get together. I mean, the whole thing was structured completely antithetical to in Christ love. So you got these two things working. You got Corinth love and you got Christ love. And the church was supposed to say, hey, we don't choose the Corinth type. We choose the Christ type. But 1 Corinthians is very obvious in this way that they didn't do that very well. That it wasn't as easy as you might think. And so I wrote down these questions. How do you keep your geography in Corinth from negatively impacting your ecclesiology in the church? How do you have your Christology in Christ positively direct your ecclesiology. In other words, how do I get my in Christ and all that that I am in him, how do I get that to be the primary impact and influence on how I do this? Because the problem is, is that when you're out in the world most of the time and you rub shoulders at your job or your neighbors or whoever it is, they don't view things the way that we do. They don't see it through the lens of scripture. They're in Corinth. We're in Christ. And by the way, those don't go together at all. And so when you live mainly out there, but then you have to come in here and love like in Christ, it's not always easy to do. So there's this tension, this dilemma that this church had, and they didn't do a very good job at figuring out how to live in Christ, but I mean, live in Corinth, but love in Christ. They didn't figure that out very well. So tonight I want to say, how do we do it? How do we stay against or, or fight against culture love with Christ's love. So I want to go over that tonight. So in the passage, let me show you a few things. In verse 13 and 14, it starts with, and this is a little detail, it has five imperatives. Okay, and That means there are five commands he's going to start with, these last two paragraphs. So what he's going to do in these last two paragraphs is he's going to summarize all the things and all the areas he's been trying to say, listen, you don't love right in just about every area of your church. So let me summarize the main message of what I need to tell you guys. You've got to learn how to love. Okay? So he gives five commands. I'll number them for you. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And fifthly, which summarizes all of them, 
Let all you do be done in love. Okay, what you don't readily see when you look at those verbs those in this text is that they are all military metaphors, okay? And by that I mean they are used of armies, fighting, warfare, okay? Watch was like a sentinel. Stand firm was a battle stance, okay? Be brave or act like men because you're fighting an enemy or foe. You're risking your life. Be strong. You're going to need the power to overcome. These are all battle terms. And you have to, I hope you would, at least like I did as I prepare. Why in the world does he use that? You know how unusual it is? I looked over 1 Corinthians. These terms are not used hardly at all, if some of them at all, anywhere else but in this verse. So it's pretty, he selected them pretty carefully. Because what he wanted to tell them and what he wants through that to tell us tonight is here's why he did it. Because if you're going to love people the Christ way and not the culture way, it's going to be a hard fight. It's going to be a struggle. In fact, we might go so far as to say it might be a war. And what he wants you to know is that these two types of love are diametrically opposed to each other. In other words, culture love is the opposite of Christ's love. And what we can't have happen, Paul says, and what you got to fight against, and he would, he would say it strongly, fight against it, is you can't let that kind of love out there come in here. You can take this love in here and take it out there, but you can't let it go the other way around, he would say. So I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that if Paul was standing here tonight, he would say, you know what you need to love in the church? A military mentality. That you're not going to adapt your love styles to the world's lifestyles. You can't. I don't know if you remember, I know I'm dating myself when I say this, but I grew up and there was a TV show called The Love Boat. You remember that? Captains. Thank you. And then, you know, the love, but it was, it was funny, and you didn't think much of it at the time, but it was all about the world's definition of love. And then a few, a decade or maybe more later, this game show came on TV, The Love Connection. And all it was was glorified culture love. That's all it was. I mean, it was two couples, and it, all they cared about was how they looked. They asked questions, if you ever saw anything like that. If you did, you certainly didn't miss anything. But both of those episodes are just indications that what the world thinks is love and how you treat people and how you respond to people and how you relate to people is completely the opposite. And I thought about those two shows and a lot of other things, and I thought, you know, a good sentence that would describe culture love would be me first. Me first. Me first, and then I add this, with no commitment attached. And is that not true today, by and large, in a lot of marriages? That I hear, I, I've, I've heard this year already, someone who got divorced after 32 years. Um, more than that, a lot, lot more years than that. I've heard younger years than that. Um, but today, if this is not, would be not uncommon, although I don't know if someone would say it directly, but probably so, that if you no longer meet my needs... I'll go somewhere else. Businesses. I've heard stories, even unfortunately, people in our church, you know, you've been in the same place of employment for decades. And because they can hire someone right out of college and pay them far less money, 
and I know that makes good business. But back in the day, people used to be committed, and their business actually cared about you, and you had a retirement, and you would go through and have many years, and you retire from that company. That is not nearly as common as it once was. Companies really aren't committed as much to the employees anymore as they are to success and gain. Patriotism. There's not the commitment to America as there once was, right? And I'm saying this purely on a social level. Now people won't say the Pledge of Allegiance. They won't do all these things. Why? Because if America doesn't do what I want them to do, then I'll, find, I'll be a, have a loyalty to myself, and I don't need them anymore. That would have been, you know, burning the flag and all that stuff when I was growing up, not st- saying the pledges, all those things, that would have been just unheard of. Not anymore. But you know what this crazy thing about it all is? That's the way it is a lot of times in church. I have talked to people, you don't have the youth group I want, I'll go somewhere else. I have talked to people, and the reason why they left church, maybe even our church or other churches, because the music isn't enough. They want this or that. Or they would say this, you know, if you use this Bible version, I can't be there. So we have people who, they're not committed anymore to it in the same way they used to be. And now people, I actually know people who would go Sunday morning somewhere and then Sunday night somewhere else and then maybe go to another youth group and their family. I was just talking this week with the mom goes here and the dad goes here and the children go other places. And the credo of today is, if I don't get what I want, I'll find it somewhere else. That's a me first love. But in the Bible, when you're in Christ... It's a he-first love, meaning him. And then a we-first love. Now, that's difficult today because we don't think we anymore. And we think individualistically and how I can have it my way and my agenda, my purposes. And when I go to church, this is what you should, and and that's how we think. And and, in the Bible, it's so community-oriented. It's what's best for everybody. It's the we mentality. And those two things are so opposite of one another and here's what paul says you can't do it both ways that's why he uses military terms you know why because these things are opposed to one another it's a fight to keep the one out and the other one in and so here's what he tells us here's the military terms be watchful it's the same word used in first peter 5 8 when it says be sober be vigilant and the word sober means watchful for your adversary the devil see it's an enemy so here's what we do. We have to be watchful. We, it's like you're a sentinel on the post in the corner of a wall of a castle and you're watching for the enemy to come over the rise so you can sound the alarm and tell people that we're under attack. And here's what he says. You know what your job as a Christian is and perhaps even more so as a leader? As you have to be careful to say this. We're always on the watch for letting the wrong type of love get in our church. The Corinthians' problems, if you read the book for yourself, were not mainly outside the church. Their biggest problems were inside the church. And so Paul would say this, no sleeping at your post. There is no warfare time and non-warfare time in your Christian life. Did you know that? Every part of your life is a battle. Why? What's the battle against? To keep a love that's Christ-centered and not culture or self-centered. Jesus warned against it. Matthew 24, 12 says, in the end times, Jesus says this, beware, for the love of many will grow cold. 
2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4, that there will be money lovers, self lovers, pleasure lovers, rather than God lovers. And one of the biggest problems in the early church was that people ended up loving culture and pleasure and more immorality and all the things culture had to offer, and their love for God began to die out. Revelation 2.4 says, you have left your what? First love. 1 John 2 says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father. See this? It's not of the Father. There's a different source. It's of the world. The world passes away and the lust thereof, but he who does the will of God will abide forever. So here's what he says. A soldier, a good soldier, fighting for Christ's love, will have eyes that are watchful, that he won't let things happen in the church or the life of others, right, or his own life or her own life, that would go against what God wants. The second military term is stand fast. Same word that begins and ends chapter 15, stand fast. It means literally hold your ground. Now, in military times, one of the most important things, you might laugh at this, they had long shields. There was a short shield that Roman soldiers carried, and there was a long shield that was about from here all the way to the ground. And when arrows came and flaming darts, they would all get together, they could hold their shield up, and it would make almost like a wall, almost impenetrable because it was made of leather, and they had fire-retardant things on the outside of it, so they could withstand almost any barrage with that shield. They had a short sword and a long sword. And they had a helmet, and it was covered the side of their face. And they had things that would cover their legs. And they had belts that they wore to keep it all up so they could run. But one of the most important things that a soldier had was his shoes. The Bible alludes to it in Ephesians 6, Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of those. He says that bring the gospel of peace and the gospel shoes in Ephesians 6. But here it is. The Bible says they had these Shoes that had a, a big heel on it with leather on the top and it had straps. Like, so it was like half shoe, half sandal. But on the bottom of it, they had what was called hobnob nails. And they would stick them in there and they were blunt on the end of it. And they, some of the sandals would have a hundred of them on the bottom. Because when you fought in battle, if it was wet and soggy or you were on slippery uh, surfaces, you had to have something that would dig in so that you could brace yourself. And hold ground, because if you lost your footing and you fell down, you were dead. And so one of the most important things you had to have is a good pair of shoes. And here's what he says. Stand fast, hold your ground, which means this. you got to wear the right kind of shoes, because it's absolutely crucial. You have to get traction. And can I tell you this? We need that. You and I need that. Our kids need those shoes. Because you and I are constantly getting pushed because everything, and that's probably not much of an exaggeration, everything in our culture is about you, your identity, you, what you want, your life, your desires, your pleasures, you deserve it, you're the best, love yourself. Listen, we're going to get moved. We're going to get moved away from true love and true life if we don't have traction, if we're not holding our ground, if we're not keeping it that way. Listen, it's about God and others. And we have to have, can I say, the Christian cleats that we need to be wearing if we're going to do it. And he says, stand fast in the faith. What do you need traction in? Well, the truth of God's word. 
The things of God's word, the lifestyle that Christ wants us to live. And listen, a lot of things are changing around us. People, even church things, are pushing us in some directions. And we have to know what matters and what doesn't matter. And we have to stand on those things with the right shoes that God would have us to wear. The third military term is act like man. We, men, we would say today, be brave. Why? Here's why. Because to do what he's asking you to do is scary. It's scary to be the only teenager at high school that might bow your head and actually say a small prayer for your meal at lunch. It'd be scary to think about what other people are going to think when they look at you at your job and you actually read your Bible during break. I know Jay's told me many times, Pastor Walker, I go out in my truck, I read my Bible, I'm at the thing, people ask me questions, and some people don't even like it, right, Jay? But I'm saying, you know what? It, it's a, it, it can be fearful, and you can be afraid to stand up for what is right and have the courage in the face of danger. I, I, I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings. I love those books. I've watched the movies. They have a lot of Christian theme elements in it. And Gandalf has courage. Uh, Aragon has courage. Legolas has courage. I mean, these guys are just, it seems like they, they're built with it. I mean, they fight everybody. They've got great talents. They're strong. They're fast. They have all these abilities. And then you have Frodo who's this hobbit with oversized feet, who's about a third the size of everybody else. But you know what? Gandalf, Legolas, Aragorn, they don't take the ring to give it back to Mordor. They don't go there. It's Frodo and little Sam. And you know what? Little ordinary people who have amazing amounts of courage. And I think, you know what? And I think of culture, I don't think as Christians as Gandalf or, you know, Aragorn. I think we're the Frodos. (laughs) We really are. And it's, it's kind of scary sometimes to go out in culture and say, yeah, I don't believe in that. And to do it with love. And to say, I do believe in this. And to do it in love. Um, Nicole Medeus asked me a couple weeks ago if where she works has a thing every year and they have a different speaker Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And it's kind of like an assistant adult care unit. And she goes, Pastor Walker, why don't you come over? I'm, you know, obviously I'm a Christian. There's a couple other Christians here, even the people who run it are Christians. And they said that I could have my pastor in and you could say anything you want. I go, really? I can say anything I want? So I'll have to think, you know what I was thinking? I don't know about that. Is that really going to be true? I'm going to get there and they're gonna, I'm going to get in trouble. So I, I, so I thought it was an adult care unit. I didn't know what that meant. And I go, so what do you think I should say? Should I like preach a sermon? Should I be more casual, formal? She goes, you're smart enough to figure it out. I go, thank you. <laughs> so I, got, I went over there, and not knowing, so she said 75, 80 people will be the workers there. All will be there. She goes, if you want to sing first. I said, no, I don't want to sing first. She and two of her coworkers sang How Great Thou Art First. And I thought that was really cool. And they did a really good job. Really, I mean, really good. I was, they didn't have churches. I was going to say, come on over here. And so it was my turn. And I got, you know, when I got there, I found out this. I found out that everyone there had some sort of mental disability. And I thought, you know what? I, I was able to, I gave the God, I gave my testimony. I gave the gospel. I was telling, I told them about my mom who had dementia and how God just loves people with weaknesses. And I shared the gospel that that's what God loves to do because the cross is how God died in weakness. And that he wants to share his life with people. And he loves, it was a 
great opportunity. But you know what I thought at first? Oh, it's a little intimidating. Am I really going to be able to say what I, am I, if I just go out there and blast it, am I, I going to get Nicole in trouble? What's going to happen? And I got there and it was beautiful and nothing happened. Not that that would make a difference. But you know what? I was so glad God just gives you the right frame of mind, the peace at the same time. But let me tell you, it doesn't mean that times when you're at work, to stand up for what you believe is easy to do. Bilbo Baggins, again, Lord of the Rings, has this quote. It's a risky thing going outside your front door. And he went outside his front door and had an adventure that he almost never came back from. But you know what? It's an adventure, isn't it? Every day as a Christian, you walk out your front door. You never know what you're going to face, especially in the culture in which we live. But what we have to do is say this, Lord, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to teach my kids to be brave. And we're going to live out the right kind of love. The last military term is be strong. It's a passive verb. It means really be strengthened. It's not your strength. And here's the great thing. How, do I, how am I going to be brave, Pastor Walker? How am I going to stand up, stand out, and stand against? How am I going to do all those things and do all of it in love, he says. You know how you do it? You have to, God has to strengthen you. So here's what I tell you. Read your Bible and pray. Why? Because that way God won't allow you to get a flat. T- None of that's silly stuff about God. Why do you need, you know why? Because every day when you get on your knees and every day you read your Bible, you know what? God is infusing you with his strength so that you can have the right kind of love. Love for him and others. Now, we're almost done. What in the world would that look like, Pastor Walker? That's pretty ethereal. That's all that theory stuff you talk about. But what would it really look like if I had a Christ love and not a culture love? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing because The rest of the chapter is about examples. Let me give them to you. There's four. The first one is Stephanus in verses 15 through 18. Aquila and Priscilla he mentions in verse 19. A nebulous group of people with no name called all the brethren. And then Paul himself. Let me just mention a couple things about each one will be done. Stephanus is the first fruits of Achaia. He was the first ones that were saved. He's mentioned at the beginning of the book in chapter 1. This man must have been a leader in the church. He was one of the first people in the Corinthian area that got saved. He was one of the few people that Paul himself actually baptized. So he was one of the first people there. And what we know about him is this. Look at verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus was the first converts in Caia. And here's what they are. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And the word devoted means to put something, people sometimes, or things in their proper order. I said, how perfect for the series. See, Stephanus had a well-ordered love. And what well-ordered love looks like in a church is when the people in the church put serving others first. See what he did? He was devoted. We might say this. The guy was hooked on ministry. He was devoted to it. To ministering to the saints. To people who were holy people. Not the people who were living like Corinthian people but people who had been called out of that to live a different kind of love. You know what he did? This is a guy who went around and served people and made ministry to people. Can I, can I, okay, I won't say beg, encourage people? You know what the number one thing you can do to stop giving in to culture, self-centered me love? Get involved in ministry. Get involved in serving. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't just come to church Sunday and Wednesday and sit in a pew and enjoy that and then go home and do nothing. Get involved. See, a well-ordered love in a church situation will be filled with people who regularly serve. I was joking with Tim Ray before the service because 
he does choir, and then he teaches a small group here. And now he's, when Ray's gone once in a while at Mosaic, he goes and preaches there. And Ray said to me the other day, well, yeah, now that he preaches there once in a while, we have to have him sing because they love him here and sing. So he's down there singing, and I go, on the side, Tim, you probably have a family and, and a job. But I was joking, but I wanted to say, dude, may your tribe increase. You know, because when you have a well-ordered love, your church does, it will be filled with people who want to love God like that. And, and that love looks like serving the saints. I mean, getting involved in ministry. Aquila and Priscilla, famous couple of the Bible. You know what's noticed about them is everywhere they lived, and they lived in three different places. I wrote them down, Ephesus, Rome, and Corinth. And every time they're mentioned in the Bible, they have a house, a church that is in their house. That's what they do. They must have traveled around with Paul a lot of times. And where he stayed, they, they worked the same kind of job. They made leather stuff like he did. And they had their own house church. And everywhere, the church that is in their house. They're always having people in the house, churches in their house. And you know what? Let me tell you this. Here's what a well-ordered church love looks like. There are people in there that are always looking to have their house available for ministry. They're hospitable. They're saying, hey, I don't know if our house is that great, but you can use it. You know, I'm thinking, Jared just gets here, and he's only here a couple weeks. I go, Jared, what would be okay? We're starting a small group for young adults. Can we do it in your basement every Sunday morning? I said, I know you only have been here two weeks. <laughs> he goes, absolutely, sure, go ahead. And I said, that's the way, it, God bless you. You know what? And maybe God, we have houses of prayer. You have people over. I hear all the time, who was it said tonight? John Butler. You know what made an impact on him? That pastor had him over and thought they were his family. It makes a difference. See, you might say, well, Pastor Walker, I can't sing, and I don't have a lot of money to give, and you certainly don't want me up front teaching or doing anything like that, and that's okay. Use your house. Use the resources. If it's not a house, something else, use the resources God's given to you. You know why? That's what a well-ordered love in a church looks like. All the brethren, they greet you, it says. Listen, you know what he says? Here's what a well, it's, it's, it doesn't mean you have to have no one knows your name. These people love these other people, wanted them to say hello and greet them. But the Bible says all the brethren, they didn't even mention their names. Now, Aquila and Priscilla got mentioned. Stephanus did, Fortunus did, a couple other ones did. But the vast majority of them, we don't even know who they were. We don't know what they did, but they cared. You know what a well-ordered love is? There will be some people. Listen, Tim can sing. I don't. Maybe you wouldn't do it. I could sing in the choir because you wouldn't hear me over everybody else. But maybe you say, I can't do that, but I could do this, and I can do this. And maybe you'll never be up front, and maybe no one will ever say your name. See, pastor said Tim's name in the service tonight. When is he going to say my name? Maybe I won't ever say your name. I don't know. But not because it matters. But you know why? But because... Churches that have a well-ordered love are filled with people, ordinary people, who never get the limelight, who never get their name mentioned, but they just love and serve and minister in every way they can. And lastly, Paul says, listen, and, and, and this is the last point because we're one minute away from being done. I don't know why, but it, I actually I think I do, but he says the strongest thing he says in the entire letter, letter in the last two verses. Can I, you say, Pastor Walker, it's really important. I got it, okay. It's really important to love God with a well-ordered love, okay. And then do that as an individual, and then do it as a church. And I know what it looks like a little bit better now. Okay, but how important is it? Here's what he says, ready? 
if you don't love the Lord, let him be accursed. What? Let him, oh, we're not going to let you serve in the nursery. No. Let him be accursed from God forever. What? Why in the world is that in there? Ready? Because all true Christians are marked by a love for God and others. All of them. So if you want to pretend that you love God and others in the church, and he says, and you really don't, but you bring in the church all this Corinthian kind of love and this culture kind of love, and you bring in that in here, he says, let me tell you, you will be judged by God for that in the most severe way, he says. He said, let him be accursed. And then he closes with this. Well, that's the vertical stuff. But let me show you the last part about how important. And I just want you to know, Corinthians, even though you haven't always done this with me, Paul says, last verse, and I want you to know, may my love be with you too. Because here's what he wants to see. The essence of a well-ordered love in a church is this. We truly love God by loving other people. And by the way, hear me, it is a fight to do it. So there are times... For me individually, I can tell you up front that I have not done that and that I could do much better. There are times as a church that we could do better and we're working at it and, and I know that we, you want that. But it is a process. It's a fight, isn't it? It's a fight. Could you ever, have you always said this? I have loved my wife like Christ loved the church. There hasn't been a day that I haven't. I don't know if we could all say that. Can we, guys? And the wives would say, you know, I submit to my husband and I love him. We've never done those things but it's a process. It's a fight, isn't it? It's, we're working at it, and we work at it together. And let me tell you this. It's what's important because he says in verse 14, here's the verse heart, all that you do, all of it, be done in love. And I wrote this. All my thoughts, all my actions, all my ministry efforts, all the uses of my spiritual gifts, all my purposes, plans, conversations, motives, desires, all of it be done in love. We got a lot to work on, don't we? We really do. But the mark of a well-ordered church is just that we love God and others, and we're always working on it by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, help us. Yes, we want to concentrate and focus on as individuals having a well-ordered love, and we've talked about that. But it also goes to say, according to this scripture, that we need a well-ordered love as a church. And Cor the Corinthians surely could have. But they let culture love in, which pushed Christ's love out. And I pray, Father, that would never be true at Faith Baptist Church. So thankful for the devoted people, so many faithful people, so many with a well-ordered love that marks their lives. Father, I pray that more and more of them would come to our church and develop in our church and that together we might become more and more of a church with a well-ordered love. Help us to grow and increase in that by your power and strength and for your glory and for the betterment of your church. We pray in Christ's name, amen.